full day and night together. Practicing the Dharma. Can you hear my voice? Just reflecting how that is for us. Whether it seems like an eternity. We're wondering how we're going to make it to the end. Or whether it seems like we're just getting started. wish these five days could be a month or a year. But however it's been, noticing how perception, the way we frame this moment, generates a reality. Tuesday night when we began. What is that? It's a memory. We can bring a memory up into the heart of that beginning. Tomorrow, how will it be tomorrow? What's that? Speculation, isn't it? Futures are speculation. Well, will it? Will the insights unfold? Will I have a breakthrough? <laughs> that would look good. <laughs> I cracked it on day four. <laughs> the Radiant Awareness Retreat. They didn't need the lights after that. <laughs> Just whoosh. Oh, what if it just gets worse? <laughs> and that big boulder. I'm addicted to trying to move big boulders. <laughs> God. In- incorrigible. But the future, what what is that? Will we avert the global warming crisis? <laughs> Seriously, you know, we've just noticing that we must. But nobody's doing anything, or some are doing stuff. But notice just honestly, with our eye of Dharma, that it's it's the unknown. We don't know. Hasn't happened yet. This refrain we we were constantly reminded of in our monastic life. Yesterday is a memory. To really taste that with memories, notice how they arise in the heart and dissolve. Tomorrow is the unknown. That's the fact. We don't know. Can we be at ease with that? I don't know. And now is the knowing. That's the last part of this daily reflection, hourly reflection. Now is the knowing. We can know the memory of struggling with anxiety today. Remember that, or that pain, or that discouragement, or that sense of peace. Memory. We can, now is the knowing of our speculations about 
will I ever learn how to let go? We can know speculation about the future. We can know the body, the breathing, the thoughts and sensations. One meditation master said the that meditation really is cultivating the art of being realistic. I like that. The art of attuning ourselves, aligning ourselves with the suchness, with the reality of memory, speculation, body. an affective nature, a, a nature, a heart that gets excited and, and drawn in and, and terrified and startled and recoiling. It lurches forward and, and shies away from. The art of learning to align ourselves, to first at least illumine the nature of things with with what? With this instrument of knowing. This timeless, present, here and now knowing of how things are. The title of this retreat was the Radiant Awareness of Being. I was waiting for you to get to that. (laughs) Radiant Awareness of Being one of the famous uh, phrases that the Buddha spoke that is uh, oftentimes remembered is when he was telling his disciples, he said, uh, monks, nuns, and disciples, your heart is radiant. The heart is radiant. That's its nature. Just like the sun is radiant. The heart is radiant. but you don't recognize it when the heart is confused by what moves through it. The heart is radiant. We don't recognize this radiance. Don't don't see that luminous unbounded, peaceful, true aspect of our being when the heart is confused by what moves through it. What moves through the heart? What's visiting the heart now? Evening, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, third full day, fourth evening, Tuesday, Wednesday, fourth evening, Dharma talk, moving through the heart. Assembly in the meditation hall. These impressions are visiting us, aren't they? The, the light and shapes of this gathering uh, register and dependent upon the eye and our being awake, eye consciousness. Sounds of the Dharma talk are, are visiting us, touching consciousness, subsiding. The mood feeling tone, the thoughts and perceptions around this are, are arising and visiting the heart now. As Tanisra mentioned the other night, uh, 
we, we imagine that we're moving through life sometimes. But isn't it true that actually life is, is manifesting and shifting and changing and reappearing within, within this matrix, this spaciousness of awareness? How do we get fooled by what moves through the heart? We make assumptions about it, don't we? We assume this is good, I want more. This is bad, I don't want it. This is me and mine. That's the most, in a sense, primordial assumption which tends to arise when there's an aura of unconsciousness. When what the Buddha called, there is avijja, not really seeing clearly. When there is a background of what could even be translated as ignorance or ignoring, ignoring the actuality. With that as condition, the Buddha said, then what comes into being is sankara, is this pattern. We create something. Create how? With a, with a thought, a perception, believing that. And the root sankara, the root sankara is this sense of it's, it's me. It's a thing, a pattern, the mind. Once you have a Something here, then you've suddenly got something there, too. You get one, and suddenly you've got a bunch. When we make assumptions about what's moving through the heart and identify with it, what's called grasp it, become it, when something pleasing moves through the heart, an insight, a beautiful state of serenity. It's quite natural, there's nothing evil about it, but that tendency to, yes, and to, to lean on that, take our stand on that, what the Buddha called upadana, to grasp that, seems innocent enough. Yet when we stand up on something, if that collapses, then what's the result? There's the sense of being dislocated, sense of being uh, cut down. bit of a silly image, but it's a funny image that's burned itself into my mind over the years uh, that sort of demonstrates this. Uh, when I was a monk, I used to visit different monasteries uh, when I was the abbot of a monastery in the west of England. And uh, we, we would visit uh, a Hindu monastery from time to time in Wales. And they had a temple elephant, which was extraordinary. Uh, <laughs> And this temple elephant, one of the monks' full-time job was to look after the elephant. When it was a baby, that was no problem, but as it got bigger and bigger and bigger, he used to sleep with the elephant. But then when the elephant would roll over occasionally, that was challenging. So the elephant needed a bigger and bigger barn, and then uh, Brother Henry started sleeping up in the loft. And this elephant, she was uh, a female and very mischievous and very clever. And um, so as a visitor, and I wanted to help out, I was going to get the opportunity to clean Vali's um, barn, her stall. So she was going to go outside into the courtyard for a while while I was in there. And so I was in her, her courtyard and in her barn and had a ladder. And I was climbed up on the ladder and had a big brush. And so I was just brushing down the walls. And the next thing I knew, the whole world is shaking. 
And I looked down, and she'd stuck her head in, and her trunk, this big mischievous trunk, had grabbed the bottom of the ladder and was just going. (laughs) 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 And, uh, you know, to me, she was really giving me a teaching that we, this, she's uh, got her trunk. There's the mischievous elephant that has its trunk around all conditions, and they keep shaking. And when we climb on to health, climb up onto the ladder of health, I used to be a wrestler. Um, used to you know, be a the champion, national champion wrestler. And, and when I was first a monk, I was, I was uh, able to teach yoga to the monks. And even my teacher, I would at 2.30 in the morning go over and do backbends with him and handstands for the others and getting us all... And uh, it was so nice to be able to be someone who could share something and do something. That was a part of my identity. Yet standing on that ladder when when, uh, this uh, volley shakes her trunk, you know, then after typhoid and, uh, uh, you know, losing, I don't know, 40 or 50 pounds, than being a, a skeleton for years and having no strength, you know. Where does that go? We think it's mine. We think it's me. We can see this in little things or big things. Little things, just even being complimented appreciated, which is lovely to be appreciated. Oh, it's so nice you're here. Oh, I just, you don't have to do anything, just being here. Ah, oh, you think, ah. Oh. <laughs> you think, yeah, gee, that's nice to know. And then someone else uh, asking you a question, and then, is that all? Can you say any more? And you realize it's not enough. And you even might get back, well, that wasn't helpful. You know, praise and blame and success and failure and things going well. Such a tendency when things going well moves through the heart. It's such a tendency to to lean on it, want it to be carry on. Why not? It's not bad. But then what happens when we stand on that and then the ladder shakes or even gets cut down? There's the sense of, that's called birth. It's called birth when we grasp a condition in Buddhist sense. Birth. We take birth in praise or birth in pleasure, pleasant sensation. Or birth when we attach to to, uh, vitality or a lovely feeling and in that moment, that just that innocent moment of creating, because we're creating a sankara, we're creating a pattern, we're creating a sense of this is good and I want it, or that's bad and I don't want it. We create that. And in that moment of owning it, or leaning on it, or climbing up on it, in that moment we ensure that there's going to be death. We ensure that when it shifts there's the sense of the jolt. And then the stress of maybe thinking, it shouldn't be that way. It, it shouldn't be that way. Like, for example, we were cultivating a, the Dharma in South Africa, and it was difficult, but Tanisha and I are working hard and trying to be honest and good people and beginning again when we fail and... Uh, trying to be of benefit to the society and then getting a little group of people that we're working with. And then what happens when then you feel betrayed? And you think, but Buddhists are supposed to be honest. And 
and they don't tell lies. It shouldn't be. Something's wrong. It should not be this way. And that's like, you know, Tanisra saying, when Ajahn Chah pointed, is that bold or heavy? Well, you know, yes, it's heavy. And he said, only if you lift it. But is betrayal heavy? Well, when we keep pushing against it, no, no, it shouldn't be this way. Is sickness heavy? Is sickness heavy? Yes, it's very heavy. When we're struggling against it. Is fatigue heavy? Is being ignored heavy? Oh, yeah, it's heavy. Yet it's one thing to... to have the the insight, even the conceptual insight that, uh, oh yeah, if I, if I don't try to lift it, it's not heavy. But then we have this addiction, don't we? Addiction to, but, but no, 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 this is a different category. I mean, this shouldn't, this should, this not a, that's not a boulder. She said boulder. This is not, this is not a boulder. This is a Buddhist that is supposed to be telling the truth. That is not what Ajahn Chah was talking about. This is, this is, this is, this shouldn't be. It's a betrayal. It's, you're going down. (laughs) And when we were to, we have a dear friend who's the abbot of a, of a monastery in the north of England. You know, as a, as a monk, you're like a professional meditator, monk or not. So, you know, this is your... You might not be able to do anything else, but, you know, you can sit, you know. You know, like a golfer gets ready to hit. Well, you know, a meditator, when you're professional, you know, <laughs> getting everything right. And, you know, so he, he had this very difficult situation of early on in his monastic career, his sitting career, he ends up with having to get an operation on both knees simultaneously. <laughs> and, you know, so he's sitting there in the hospital all kind of strapped up, kind of laying out there, and Ajahn Chah comes to visit him. And, and Ajahn Manu says, Loom Paul, it shouldn't be this way. I mean, what kind of monk can I be like this? And Ajahn Chah said, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. (laughs) And that's, you know, when we have these situations, we we encourage ourselves that it is this way. And we might still be struggling with, even though we don't want to call it a boulder, we're pushing on something. <laughs> and we're struggling and shifting. And, uh, but, you know, if we can uh, remember, then we can, you know, uh, if, can we notice this is dukkha? This is dukkha. Just that is such, as Tanisra spoke like last night, very important. This is dukkha. And rather than being ashamed of it, oh God, I'm useless. Or we easily in our world today go into blame, you know, go around hating the betrayers or blaming somebody or other. You know, to to remember this extraordinary teaching, just there is suffering. It's a noble truth. It's ennobling to the heart when we remember the exhortation that suffering needs to be understood, stood under, opened to. So we open to the betrayal, the sense of failure, the the sickness, the not getting insights, or it's too short a time, whatever, open to that. 
Notice how that, how does that ennoble the heart? Because the heart has to stretch. Because it's used to distracting ourselves by getting away from it or blaming someone else. We can get revved up on blaming someone else and not be in touch with the, the raw dukkha. There is dukkha. When we open to it, that, that emerged, the second ennobling truth emerges from that. Dukkha has a cause. It emerges out of something. There are conditions that give rise to dukkha. It's not an ultimate truth. The Buddha did not say, life is suffering, full stop. <laughs> you know, he said, he, many times he, he said, yes, I teach suffering and the deliverance from it. Suffering and the ending of suffering. Suffering emerges because certain conditions are in place. We don't see those conditions in place if we're so busy getting rid of it, so busy getting away from it. When we open to it in the space of that, we have the possibility of seeing how it arises. And the second ennobling truth is, yes, there's an origin of suffering, and it's arising by this wanting things to be a certain way. What do you call this thirsting, this deluded craving that's, that's, that's attaching to wanting the, the sensory hit to be always pleasing through the eye or th- through the ear or through the nose or the tongue or the body or the mind. or the the desire to to, to become something, to climb up on a condition and really find out who I am. I'm a winner. Or I'm a a professional meditator. (laughs) Or or I'm I'm an executive. Or I'm a mother. You know, or I'm an enlightened one. Or the other side of that, I'm just useless. Just, but that that craving to somehow imagine that we can become, find out what we are, and find security in that, or to find security in being pleased with the sensory, the external contact with that which is pleasing, that sense that that's where the security is. What's called kama tanha, the craving of sensation. Bhava dana, the craving to become something. Or wheat bhava dana, the craving to not become. The craving to just, couldn't we just turn the lights off? <laughs> oh. that, that, that feeling sometimes when it's just so difficult and we we seek the ending of suffering, the security of plunging under the blanket, crashing, not wanting to know, wanting to just blot it out. These are not evil. They're natural. Seeking, seeking some sort of security. But what's the result? If we climb on, or as Ajahn Chah put it, he said, if you seek security in that which is uncertain, you're bound to suffer. If we're looking for certainty in that which is uncertain, we're bound to suffer. This is where the art of meditation becomes so precious because in meditation and as we've been doing connecting with the body connecting with standing sitting walking lying down connecting with what is the experience of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and knowing so we start to get a little more established in being here then there's the opportunity to look into the nature of conditions the conditions of, of our life. And we have the opportunity to see 
what's what, what the Buddha called the characteristics. Characteristics of existence, of what we take to be me and my world and life. The, the, the first characteristic, which not as something just to believe in, as another opinion just to tuck away in our mind, but as an encouragement to look freshly. The Buddha said, you know, look for the impermanent nature of conditions. Learn to, as we breathe, as as we're aware moment to moment, can we perceive directly? Ah, nicca was the word the Buddha used. Nietzsche means permanent. Anicca means it's not fixed. It's not certain. What is... What, what are we contacting? Like the eye. This is our world. What we see, the world of form right now. Is it shifting? As your focus shifts? As your eyes blink? As the light flickers? As people move and shift? Is the world of seeing and form certain? So we notice the light increasing in the day and decreasing, and the guy up front fiddling with that thing, trying to figure out how to do it. <laughs> Glass on, comes down. <laughs> and then sometimes we even get uh, stinging eyes, and it's hot, it's cold. The world of our sensations, actually, the sensations of our body right now. So we notice the skin touching the clothing, expanding and contracting of the body breathing, the pressure in the legs from gravity pulling us to the earth throbbing and shifting. Is that certain? Not to mention sounds. We call it the Dhamma talk, the the good talk. Well, it was all right. My God, I really made, made some good karma. I was patient making it through that thing. The bad talk. We create a sense of it being a thing, but actually when we go up close to it, it it's, it's more like Swiss cheese, isn't it? I mean, it's got holes in it, it pauses, crescendos and spaces around the sounds. Yet if we're looking for certainty in sound, certainty in feeling, certainty in sight, certainty in the forms of life. It's crazy, isn't it? We haven't really thought it out. How can something which by nature, when we come right up close, it's like when there's a big storm and in our monastery, we had a lake and, and, and the lot of water and the, the water would rush over the waterfall. You go up close. Let's go see the Chithurst waterfall. We've got a pretty waterfall. It sounds like our waterfall. It's a thing. But as you go up close to it, it's the spray, the thunderousness. You try to grab it. You can't grab it. You can be in awe of it. You make contact, but you can't. It's not a thing. And yet, actually, that cascading change is happening all the time in terms of what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're thinking. So if we're through craving or seeking, seeking certainty in something which is inherently uncertain, that's called a recipe for dukkha. And Ajahn Chan, his lovely, earthy ways of talking about it, he says that's going up to, it's like going up to a chicken saying, why aren't you a duck? He just says, 
Why aren't you like the others? Come on, let me hear you. You can quack. Come on, try it. <laughs> quack, quack. Come on. Oh, no, no, no. That's all wrong. You know, it's obvious when we look at it, but you know, who's going to go up to a chicken and ask him why it's not a duck? But he says, we do that. We do that, don't we? When we don't really appreciate. And this, this, this craving for things to be other than what they are, he says, we need to learn how to hold that loosely, to let it be. Not to be so quickly stuck to it, become it. We need to let it go. The third ennobling truth is that when, when there really is letting go, when there's a moment of letting go, of, of trying to make conditions be what they can't be, trying to get sights and sounds and smells and tastes to really be a stable platform, an absolutely trustworthy ladder to climb up onto, to build our house on, so that we can live happily ever after. That in a moment of, of let of disenchantment, letting that go. Moment of not squeezing life, trying to make it be what it can be, not rejecting life in the moment. We can experience the cessation of suffering. And the cessation of suffering needs to be realized. to realize that moment when we're not creating suffering by pushing on that boulder, by pulling on that boulder. And this path to the ending of suffering, this path of virtue, this path of samadhi, of training ourselves to be realistic, to be here. This path of inquiring into the nature of things needs to be cultivated. It's something we bring forth. We begin again and again. So there's suffering, there's an ending of suffering. There's birth and death, and also the Buddha said there's that which doesn't die. He proclaimed that to his monks and nuns and disciples there is an unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, undying dharma. If it wasn't for that, there would be no escape from dukkha. But because there is, there is that which doesn't die, that which is unshakable. So what what is that? The Buddha's first you might have heard this before, but it's his, his first sermon, which doesn't usually get talked about very much, but our, our teachers like to talk about it. I, they used to say his first sermon was a flop. Because after his enlightenment, he was so radiant that someone walked by and said, Oh, your features are serene. Your complexion is bright. What are you about? And who is your teacher? And the, the Buddha gave a lion's roar, I'm an all-awakened one. What need have I of a teacher? I discovered this through my own effort. And, you know, he wasn't lying. But uh, that was, didn't give the guy a lot to hold on to. He either had to just sort of believe it. So they said he just sort of shook his head and clucked a bit and then went off another path. And that his, his, rather than just saying, believe in me, or believe in the undying, or the unshakable, when he thought about what is skillful to transmit this, rather than just encouraging people to believe in Nibbana, 
you know, we could we could have started the evening by saying, don't be bashful. Just try. Just form the words. I believe in Nibbana. No, no, no. I know you're afraid. I know you're afraid. Don't be bashful. Just, just say it. I believe in Nibbana. Come on, come on. Do it. You know, we, we could have done that. And there is, I mean, and in a sense, there is some sort of trust that there is some sort of possibility of growing, but, but you know, that's not like the real emphasis in Buddhist practice. You start from the other side. I mean, that's the genius of the Buddha. You know, it doesn't take a great leap of faith to, to, to open up to there is suffering. You know? <laughs> There is suffering. I mean, if you reject that, there is suffering. And the possibility that, no, no, it's important. It's ennobling to open to it for the sake of understanding it. And this suffering arises through conditions, this condition of grasping and rejecting. But this suffering ends when there's the abandoning of that and there's a path that leads to that. And so all we're asked is to meet the elements of our experience openly, honestly, as we start to see this change. And notice. It's powerful. When the Buddha gave that first teaching, one of his disciples, on first hearing it, his eye of dharma opened, what's called entering the stream. He, he tasted nibbana. He hadn't rooted out all the tendencies to get fooled, but he tasted nibbana. His disciple, Anya Kandanya. Kandanya. And what did he realize? The disciple that first realized what did he realize? He realized that what arises ceases. Seems so simple. What arises ceases. The breath comes in and subsides. A sound appears and then dissolves. And later when he was asked to describe his doorway to awakening, Kandanyo talked about the image of the host and the guest. If you have a hotel, the guests come. They might stay a while, but then they go. The host stays, remains, Sounds come and go. Sights come, shift, rise and subside. Good moods, difficult moods, boring moods come, visit and go. Very important in Buddhist practice to start to contemplate the ending of conditions, this third noble truth. The ending of a sound. What remains? The ending of a thought. We're so preoccupied by the thoughts the happy thoughts, the scary thoughts, the I'm confused thoughts. But do we notice where that thought came from? That silent alertness. Do we notice the space after a thought? That gap. When we're preoccupied with conditions, 
just a form of conditions. We concretize them and, and, and grasp them, creating birth and death. when we remember that actually this heart is luminous, there is something unbounded, unshakable. When we remember a phrase the Buddha taught, vimutti sarasa bedama, that the all conditions, every single one of them, good and bad and happy and unhappy, clear and confused, every single condition, that's what sabedama means, vimutti sarasa, at the core of each and every condition, its essence is still, spacious, free. Vimuti means free, unfettered. So it means right now, the essence of this condition right now. So whatever our conditions are now, can we get the sense of them arising and ceasing coming and going in what remains. Whatever name we give for that is just a name. Some call it the Buddha. You could call it the knowing. Kuan Yin might call it the listening the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world, the sounds of suffering, the sounds of hope, the sounds of disappointment, the sounds of happiness. All these sounds arise and cease back into thee. Whatever you call it, we can be that. So this practice is, in a sense, it can be called a great reversal. Part of us has gone out to, and contracted our boundless nature around imagining that we're this body or this mood or this illness or this accomplishment. Not, not a bad thing, but then in imagining that, when that inevitably changes, as it does by the nature of conditions, there's a sense of death and then a sense of scrambling to find new security. When we start to realize that that's destined for frustration, then this disenchantment or this bua that Ajahn Chah talked about starts to arise as a blessing. We start to realize that, that we're looking in the wrong place. And so the reversal is we then begin not to demand so much, and the heart's then starting to turn back around and listen into the true nature. To listen into the suchness. There is a ground that is solid. We're seeking security and holding conditions which by nature are like that ladder that was being shaken. Who would have thought that just by holding it more loosely, by letting things shake, who would have thought that by truly honoring the shakeability of life, the absolute uncertainty of life, who would have thought that by really welcoming that, we find ourselves standing right on that which doesn't move. While I was still a wrestler and got my shoulder ripped out and so I thought, oh, I better change my posture. I had four screws put in that side and tried to do the other way. In the hospital, when they had the screws and put them in, and it was painful, and I was kind of recovering, and I was sitting in a bed and had one of these railings above the bed. And I was tired, I'd been up, but I wanted to lie back down, and I sort of trusted there was a bed back there, but it seemed, whoa, where is it? 
and I wanted to let go, but is it really going to catch me? And uh, well, and finally I let go, and then the bed held me, and I could relax and not do anything, and I was held. Just letting go. Can we practice with an out breath, just letting go of trying to rearrange all the rocks? On an out breath, can we practice just not grasping, not rejecting, just holding gently this body? Can we get a sense of just resting in the ground of listening? Resting in the ground suchness. Letting the activity which throws through the mind be, be what it is, appreciating it, making contact with it, but recognizing that its nature is empty of solidity. It's there and then it's gone. Like a bubble. The bubble's there, and it's beautiful, and there's a rainbow around it, and it's incredible. Look at that bubble, and then pop. So someone says, see, it doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. And then someone else says, there's, there it is. It does exist. Pop. Doesn't exist. Does exist. Is, isn't, is, isn't, good, bad, good, bad. The word can't capture it. It's empty of what you thought it was. It's there, and then it's gone without a trace. When we honor this ephemeral nature for what it is, when we truly honor it for what it is, Master Xunhua says it becomes wonderful existence because we've honored its emptiness. It becomes wonderful existence. If we say it exists, it's real, then we climb onto it and we create suffering and birth and death. If we want it to just be totally empty, which sometimes meditators want, we just want to be empty and not be bothered. That emptiness still has some aversion in it. The emptiness isn't really empty. It has form in it. But that form doesn't really exist because it keeps popping. So form and emptiness are just beautifully intermeshed. Mind and body the undying and the conditioned. Perfectly fused. I encourage us to be very patient beginning again, beginning again, beginning again, laughing at our falling down. No, it's all a part of ennobling the heart, all a part of learning, little by little cultivating this one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. Trusting that our, according to the saints and sages, we can at least ponder this, Trusting that our true nature is awakening. We might not know it yet. It's just like looking at an acorn and looking at a great grand oak tree. Just imagining how that's going to come out of that. It just looks. And yet it does. In one of the famous discourses of the Buddha, the Lotus Sutra, the, you know, the Buddha said that just being in a situation like all of us here, he says, you're by just starting this opening and contacting the nature of things, that our destiny is flowering into Buddhahood. 
He said, you should have no further doubts. Let your hearts be filled with joy. You will realize awakening. How can he say that? Because it's our luminous true nature. It's only these unconscious, unexplored views which will burn away as we patiently align ourselves with the way things are. I stumble through sharing the way it is to the best of my ability. I love this practice. It's a privilege to be able to to share some. Uh, Forgive me for where I get it wrong. But just to make sure, I want to let the Buddha have the last word. Mm -hmm. So I will leave you tonight with, with a lovely short teaching that the Buddha gave. And a young student came to see him. And I, I, I think we all can relate to this. A young student named Kappa. He said, Sir, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of becoming. Death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me, where to find an island? Where is there solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain? Kappa, said the master, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of becoming overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession, of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, working for death. They cannot fall into his power.
taking 30 minutes, if you wish, for some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.